Please take your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, the 58th verse. And then we're going to read through the 18th verse of chapter 16. And these verses will serve as the basis for the morning message. I'm reading today from the New American Standard Bible and encourage you to follow in whatever version you have available. 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collection be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Let no one, therefore, despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged you great, him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The church in which I was raised was a wonderful church. It was a church where I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It was the church which saw in me the potential to become a pastor and ordain me into the gospel ministry. It was a church that still has interested in me, even though I've been gone from it for 45 years. I love that church. I love the pastors who were my pastors. Three men were my pastors before the pastor whom the Lord would have come to become my mentor, actually, and was used very, very constructively in my life to help me to grow in my faith 
in my following Christ as his disciple. At the end of the sermon, almost every Sunday, I cannot remember a single Sunday, it was very predictable what the pastor would say. I'm talking about the three pastors before my mentor came. And they were preachers of the gospel. Every Sunday there was a gospel message. No one was without excuse if he or she did not know Christ to know the gospel. It was presented week in and week out. And the plea from the pastor at the end of the worship service was a simple plea. If you do not know Jesus Christ, come forward and confess Him as your Lord and Savior and follow Him later in believer's baptism. This went on week after week after week. If there was no one who came forward when he gave that invitation, he would add a second possibility. If you are here and you know Christ, yet you have drifted away from the Lord, I encourage you to come forward to recommit your life to Christ. A very appropriate invitation, I might add. And then there was a third aspect that always followed on the heels of that second aspect if there was no movement within the congregation to respond to the message of the gospel. And the invitation at this point turned to this kind of plea. If you really want to sell out to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you come forward and commit yourself to be a pastor or a missionary or a minister of music, what we would call a worship leader today, or a minister of education in the church. You come forward and yield yourself to full-time Christian work, the work of the Lord. Now, as much as I owe to that church for my spiritual upbringing, this was a misunderstanding of God's will for His people as it relates to the work of the Lord. It carried with it the suggestion that there is a caste system within the body of Christ with the people at the top being pastors and missionaries and other vocational Christian workers, as they are oftentimes called. But I learned, by the grace of God, that God wants everybody to do the work of the Lord. And I learned it through the Word of God. Today we're going to look at this passage in some detail to explore the meaning of the work of the Lord We'll begin by considering that Paul did the work of the Lord. He says as much in verse 10 of chapter 16. Reread it with me, please. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without any cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, or this could be translated, the work of the Lord. Same wording as is used in the last verse of chapter 15. As I also am, Paul saying, I do the work of the Lord. Remember what Paul has said earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he's calling all those who made up the church at Corinth, and I want to make it clear here today, all those in the church of Corinth were not sold out at this point. In fact, part of the reason for Paul's writing the letter to the Corinthians, the first one that we're looking at today, was to challenge them to sell out to the Lord, to do the work of the Lord. All of them, not just some of them, not just those who may have had a speaking gift or some other kind of unique calling in the church of Jesus Christ as related to proclaiming the truth. The Apostle Paul's work was that of discipling. Another way of describing what it means to be a disciple maker like Paul was 
It's to become the spiritual parent of someone. Now, we know that God is our Father. I can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. But in His economy, God has established people whom He has assigned, and that would be anyone potentially who knows Christ, to carry on the work of making disciples of people. You might say, I don't know how to do that. Well, let me ask you, most of you who are adults here today are parents. And you are being a parent. Did you know anything about parenting before you started parenting? I mean, you were walking around in a fog, not only because your child kept you awake through the night, but because you were just clueless, but you became a parent, didn't you? Did you make some mistakes in parenting? Well, certainly you did. I made many. But you never did those mistakes on purpose, did you? No, you loved that child that the Lord gave to you. And you learned on that child. And the child survived. Thank God. (laughs) Well, this is our calling. You may say, I've never entered into spiritual parenting. I have yet to do that. Well, listen, you can do it. The Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitated Christ. And the Lord will teach you how to do that if you're willing to do it. He calls all of us to be this kind of person. The Apostle Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, another figure in the history of the church at Corinth, but God caused the growth. This is critically important for us. If we are going to be used by God in spiritually parenting people, another way, discipling them, we are going to have to trust the Lord for it. We don't have it in ourselves to do it from our own natural understanding. It's something that is supernaturally implanted in us when Christ comes to live in us. And God will use you. Paul says about himself in Colossians 1.28, it could be something that I would say about myself, or you could or we could together say this. He said, we proclaim him. Referring to Jesus. We proclaim Jesus admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You could insert the word woman there. Every person. So what was the M.O. of Paul? He was about making disciples. And it started with proclaiming Jesus. And he had a vision. What was his vision? That he could present every single person whom God gave to him and to his cohorts to spiritually parent. This is our responsibility as a church. We are to be men and women who have the same sort of commitment in our relationship to the Lord. Paul was a spiritual parent. He discipled people. And we are to do the same. I'd like you to... Look at verse 7. This would easily escape us. You know, sometimes when we get to the end of a book in the Bible, when Paul, for instance, is signing off, we sort of blank out. We say, there's nothing here for me. Well, think again. There's great instruction here to us as it relates to our being disciple makers. Look at verse 7. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. There's nothing quite like our yielding ourselves 
represented in our time to be with those people whom the Lord gives us to disciple. It takes time to be a parent. To be an effective parent takes your life almost, doesn't it? And we are those sorts of people who have been invested in. The Spirit of God used someone else to invest in me. And I have the wonderful privilege and, I might add, obligation to look for other opportunities, and you do too, to carry on this great work of disciple-making. Paul was a delegator. He talks about Timothy here. Timothy had been sent to them. If we had read the fourth chapter, we would see that. He had been sent to them by the apostle to be as if he were Paul because he had internalized the things which Paul had taught him and he was teaching as if it were Paul there teaching. This is what he says about Timothy. This is so incredible and so encouraging. In writing to the church at Philippi, he says this about Timothy. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in you. For everyone else is focused on his or her own interests, but he is focused on the interests of Jesus. What is the interest of Jesus? People. People. Not building an institution, not building a name for ourselves as a church or as individuals. It's about the Lord Jesus and doing it with people. This is what our calling is. It's about people. And people whom the Lord gives us to train and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another thing about Paul's work. It was a work of discipling. It was a work of delegating. Because the purpose is is to kick the birds out of the nest, really. Isn't it? We don't want people just to hang around us all our lives. Sometimes it's hard for us as parents to let our children go. Because we love them so much, but we stunt them, don't we? We prevent them from accomplishing what they were meant to accomplish. Same is true in the spiritual life. But Paul's work was also difficult. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 16. He says, I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Mark it down. When the Lord opens a door wide for the sharing of the powerful message of the gospel of Christ, there will be many opponents. And that's why I believe in verse 13, if you'll look ahead to verse 13, there's this series of admonitions, commands, short commands. They're all in the present tense, which simply means there is never a moment that I'm not to be in one of these modes All four of these modes. And they have the ring of the military. Some of you are military people or have been. They have the ring of the military in them. The first of which is be on the alert. There's good reason for that. Because we have an adversary, the devil, who roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There's never a moment that you and I can be on at ease in terms of our Watching out for the work of the devil. He loves to undermine the work of the Lord. Go back to verse 58. There's a companion command there in verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. And the idea of being steadfast, this word is most often used in relationship to stand firm in the Lord 
as you do the work of the Lord. Because Satan will try to unsettle you. He will try to make you unstable. Which leads to the second command in verse 13. Keep on standing firm in the faith. Not just in your own personal experience with the Lord. When you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is so special to us, isn't it? When we came to know Jesus. But the idea here is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the teaching of the apostles in the Scriptures. Many of you know the Apostles' Creeds. It would, Creed, rather. It would be the elements contained in the Apostles' Creed. The tr- teaching of who Christ is, who God the Father is, who the Holy Spirit is, what the church is, how we can come to know all those things. We are to stand firm in the faith. Why? Because Satan is going to try to undermine our walk with the Lord. He's going to cast doubt into our minds. We need to recognize this. And we need to do what James says in James chapter 4. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The word translated resist there in James chapter 4 is the same word which Paul chooses here when he says stand. Same word. We're to stand up against the devil. We're not to tuck our tails and run. We are to put on the full armor of God and stand up against the assault and the temptation and trials that Satan brings our way. The third command. Remember, there are many adversaries. Act like men. No apologies to you ladies. This is a term which was used exclusively outside the New Testament to refer to men at war. It was a way of describing what a leader would do, a general, a commander would do when he was coming in front of his men, exhorting them to be courageous. And some of you have been in battle. You know what it's like. And you know how you have this surge of fear that becomes prominent. And you need courage to go and do what you are assigned to do. I cannot help but remember the one scene among many which stands out, and this stands out to me more than any other in the movie The Gladiator, Maximus, you may remember, he his men were on the frontier, really beyond the frontier of the Roman Empire's influence. They were about to engage barbarians, probably Visigoths, and these guys were out of control. I mean, they were half men and half animal. And they had no fear and they were bloodthirsty. And as he got on his beautiful white steed and he made his way up and down the ranks, he paused as his steed reared and he said, Remember, men, this today. What we do in history echoes in eternity. This is a pagan talking. We're not pagans. We're people who know God through Jesus Christ. We are in a battle. And our commander is Jesus Christ. He is the captain of the Lord of hosts, is the way he's presented in the book of Joshua. And he comes before us and he says, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Take heart, because the devil loves to strike fear in our hearts. He suggests all kinds of things that are lies to us about our inabilities and our weakness And the good news is the currency of God using you and me is found in those things. We're unable 
and we're weak. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, if I boast about anything, I boast in my weakness. And he was not just putting on airs there. He meant it. And we need to understand it's when we are weak that we can be strong, leading to the last thing that we're commanded in this 13th verse. Keep on being strong. The Bible says, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. The Bible says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Our strength is in the Lord. So we have many adversaries. There are all sorts of suggestions that these emissaries of the devil would make to us about our being out of step, our being antiquated in our thinking, our being narrow-minded, our being ignoramuses, uneducated, etc., ad infinitum. I remember hearing Billy Graham respond, this great saint who died just earlier this year. He always would go to a city and have a press conference a couple of months prior to his leading an evangelistic campaign in that city. And then he would field questions after telling what his goals were. And there was a reporter in the crowd who said this to him, Mr. Graham, it seems to me that you're trying to take the church back to the 19th century. And with a twinkle in his eye, and really with joy in his heart, he said, no, no. I'm trying to take the church back to the first century. That's where I'm trying to take it. (laughs) To the New Testament. And this is what God's called us to do, to be men and women who believe Jesus Christ is the same today as He was in what we call the first century. And the same Jesus who lived in Paul, He said, for to me to live is Christ. That's possible for us too, to live in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Lord, is with us. And He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will strengthen us for this work. A wide door for effective service is open to us. And there are many adversaries. Well, it's not only Paul's work. That was true back in the first century. But it's our work. Why do I say that? Is there anything in this passage which would indicate that I'm right in that? I believe so. Look at verse 58 again. Therefore, my beloved brethren, just stop right there. To whom was he speaking? Did he huddle around him the pastor of the Corinthian church and maybe some others who had the gift of teaching, some who had the gift of exhortation, some with the gift of prophecy, maybe some budding apostle? Did he... Get that small group around him? No, this was addressed to all the believers there. Remember, most of whom were very immature, deeply in need of growth. And he says, beloved brethren, one of the most important things you need to know is just how much the Lord loves you as his child. Think about the price that God the Father paid so that you and I could be his children. He sent His only Son. The way in which Paul speaks of it in Romans 8 is so touching. He spared not His only Son to minister salvation to us. So, we need to see that we are beloved brothers. And we are people whom He has given this work to do. 
to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. And there are at least three examples that surface from this passage of Scripture as to what that would look like. It's all expressing the love of the Lord, the love of God. It's all about that. If one thing could be said about the New Testament church, and what should be said about this church, is that we are a church that is characterized by love. I'd like to read a piece of correspondence from a man by the name of Aristides to the Emperor Hadrian, the Emperor of the Roman Empire. Hadrian ruled the Roman Empire from 117 to 138 A.D. So this is not very long after the church had been formed. Listen to what he wrote. This is a pagan written to the pagan emperor about Christians. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, 16 rather, in 17, we hear these words from John. He says, we know love by this, that He, speaking of Jesus, laid down His life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us love our brothers, is what John goes on to write. Not just with word, but in deed. Let's do something about it. And we see in this passage three examples of this love. Generosity, look at verses 1 and following. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so do you also, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. There was some great need of a financial sort in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, the mothership, the first of all the churches formed by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was in Jerusalem. And they had run upon hard times. And so what does the Lord tell the apostle to tell the church at Corinth? Set some money aside. Don't wait for a special offering to be asked for. Make it part of your systematic division of the money that God prospers you with. After you give what you do to the local church, and we know this is an additional offering. In fact, the word translated collection or collections, in both cases, is the same word. It means an extra collection. The idea is that the church there, and I think it would be true for us, we should individually think about setting some money aside so that when we become aware of a brother or sister in Christ in our body who is needing help financially, 
we would be able to give to that purpose. In this case, the money was going to be sent by courier or couriers to Jerusalem, trusted men. So we see a practical step of generosity. And then, as we read a little further, let's look at verses 5 and 6. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia. That's the northern part of Greece. Corinth was in the southern part of Greece. He says in verse 6, And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Now, that's a little odd for Paul. Because he has said in chapter 9, reminding them that he had never taken any money from them. But now he's strongly suggesting, when I come to you next time, I'm going to be going on mission, and you'll probably not only host me for a period of time, but you're probably going to be moved by the Lord to give some money to help sponsor this mission trip that I'm taking. He says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8, he says, and very sarcastically, because there were people who were his detractors in the church at Corinth, who were saying, oh, he's only wanting money from us. That's really what they were saying. Because we know this from what he says, I robbed churches. Well, he didn't rob any church, but that's what they were saying about him. I robbed churches so that I might have something to serve you with. It's free. I could serve you without charging you anything. So Paul is now suggesting, you'll send me off. So... Paul knew he was going to receive generosity from them for the mission that the Lord had given to him. And then Timothy as well. In verse 11, let one therefore not despise him, that is Timothy, but send him on his way in peace so he may come to me. To help him get back to where Paul was. Paul needed him and they could contribute there. Generosity is an expression of our work of the Lord. And another idea, in addition to generosity, that's an expression or example of this kind of work coming through us, is encouragement. Look at verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brothers. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. It wasn't right for Apollos to come, but... He was encouraged by Paul. Paul was a great encourager. He was an exhorter. And God used him to move people. But he was one who needed encouragement too. Sometimes we think the people who are the biggest encouragers don't need any encouragement. Think again. The Apostle Paul speaks, look in verses 17 and 18. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Have you ever been refreshed by another Christian? There are times in my work, which I'm grateful for, all of them really, but I'm going with the understanding that God's sending me there to really encourage someone else. This happens to me frequently. It typically comes through people older than me. It's hard to believe there are people older than me, but I understand that. And I come, and they encourage me. They say, Pastor, may I pray for you? I said, yes, you may. Thank you. And I leave there thinking, this was for me. I needed refreshing. And these people, many of whom are 
widowed, homebound, eking out an existence because of limited income, they want to pray for me. Praise the Lord for that. We can all encourage. You know, the Bible says to all of us, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that your heart may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Bible also says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on, stimulate some of the translations, say one another to good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord coming, the end of the world coming. We come to worship here. We worship through song. We worship through prayer. We worship through giving. We should be coming here too to worship through encouraging each other. Look around you. Find somebody whom the Lord would cause you to give a word of encouragement. I received an encouragement card this week from one of the brothers in the church. And it was so encouraging to receive that. I thought, wow, that was thoughtful of him. And then I paused and said, Lord, it was thoughtful of you to put it in his heart to do it. And he was obedient to you. And I'm grateful for your putting that in his heart and for his being thoughtful enough to send that encouragement to me. So, the third example. What's the first example of this kind of work through us? Generosity. Secondly, encouragement. Here's the third one. Surface. Service. Look at verses 15 and 16. Now, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits, they were the first converts of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Some of you have the King James Version in hand. And that phrase translated by the New American Standard that I read, that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Listen, if you don't have the King James that they have addicted themselves for ministry to the saints. It was a way of life, wasn't it? Serving. Now, you don't have to have any great, great skills or gifts as far as the church is concerned. But remember, what did Jesus say about His mission? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do what? To serve and to give His life a ransom for many. All of us, every one of us, is capable of serving somebody else, without exception. All we have to do is look around. And you know where your service needs to begin? Same place mine does, in my home. I need to serve my wife. I need to serve my children. I need to serve my grandchildren. We have ample opportunity in the house. But there's a lot more than just our house. We want to get at, These people serve the Lord as a household you understand what that meant? We don't know how many people made up the household. They had all been beautifully saved from their sin. And what do we see them doing? They're out there. They're the leaders in the church and they're serving, ministering. And all of us are capable of doing such things. We're not to grow weary in our well-doing, the Bible says in Galatians. Because if we don't give up, we will receive a reward someday. Not in this life, perhaps, but in eternity. Well, here's the last thing. I say the most important for the last. The work of the Lord. It's Christ's work, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Now understand, this is faith work. I didn't say fake work. I said faith work. A lot that goes under the guise of the work of the Lord is fake work. Because you do it to get other people's approval, including God's. But what we know is that when Jesus was approached by a group of people, it's recorded in the sixth chapter of John, he was asked this question, what must we do to do the works of God? They were serious in their questioning. And he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he has sent, that you have faith. We are in a faith venture. And faith means dependence upon the Lord. Now, this little phrase, the work of the Lord, it could mean work for the Lord. And certainly there is much for us to do in service to the Lord. It's important that we remember that whatever we do, we're to do it for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for God's glory, for His honor. Not to build yourself a reputation, not for us as a church to build ourselves a reputation, but to lift Him up. And let him be held in the highest esteem. But here's what I believe the main emphasis of this phrase, the work of the Lord is. It's his work through us. That's it. And you have to think only as far as the Apostle Paul. In chapter 15 of Romans, verse 18, he says, I will not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. This is a man who had lived his pre-Christian life always trying to get people to think about how great he was. But all that changed and all those things he committed to to draw attention to himself, what happened? He said, they become like a pile of dung, is what he really says. All of that stuff. It's just like a, t- a pile of waste, he said. And he changed Because he gave Christ control of his life. And it was the Spirit of the Lord in him, working through him. This is the work of the Lord. It's not easy work. We've seen that. The Apostle Paul, on the heels of having said, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ, says this, and for this purpose I labor, striving with His power, which mightily works within me. The word striving is the word, listen to it, agonizomai. Do you hear a word or a series of words in English which are derived from that? He agonized in the work. The work is hard because we're in a battle. But it's done by the power of the Lord. There's no other way it can be done. And when the Lord does the work, the mission is accomplished. If he doesn't do the work through you, you might as well be doing something with some other service organization besides doing it in the so-called name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news for us. Our work is his work. Better said, it's his working through us as we depend upon him. We have the mind of Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to give us insight how we can be generous, how we can be encouraging, how we can serve. All of us are capable of all those things. If we just trust the Lord, would you bow your head? 
I have been really touched in my own heart by this message, the preparation, thinking of it. And I'm going to pray my prayer to the Lord. And if you sense the Lord's been speaking to you about your need to properly do the work of the Lord, you could make this your prayer, I would think. Dear Lord, I confess that I have done your work far too often in my own strength and for my own benefit. I acknowledge this as being wrong. Lord, it's a sin. I ask that you would forgive me, Lord. Thank you that you are the God of many second chances. And now I ask you that you would fill me with your spirit, Lord. Fill me with your word. Help me to be a man who indeed always abounds in your work, Lord. Knowing that when we labor in you, our work is not in vain. Thank you, Lord, that you say that what you do lasts forever. I want to be a man whose influence lasts forever. And I hope that's true for all of you here today. That you wouldn't be satisfied with living a self-centered life which is full of disappointment. Lord, every time I look at myself, I get sick. I get mopey and depressed. But thank you, Lord, when we are in step with you, we get our eyes off of ourselves and on you and follow you. And the result is always one of uplift. Because in your presence there is fullness of joy. Lord, make this church, I pray now, Lord, for the church of Coronado, that our church would be not a church that accepts business as usual. But we would be men and women, young men and young women, boys and girls, who have in our heart what's on your heart, Lord. People who know you and need encouragement, who don't know you and need you. Make us this kind of church, I ask, as the pastor of this church, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.